and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and I am joined by Sarah Jane Bentley. Sarah Jane, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Hi, David. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I want to say at the outset of this episode that um, if you listened to our first episode on The Rector of Justin, which is the book that, of course, we are going to discuss today, you uh, will remember that Matt Bianca was joining us and he is normally going to be here. But unfortunately, um, someone in his church community passed away this week. And so he is um, attending attending to that and being with his church community. So I just wanted to uh, say, you know, keep, keep that uh, his community and, and um, those families uh, in your prayers. Um, remember them and um, just wanted to let you know that uh, Matt will be back next week, but um, that's uh, something to something to remember, uh, in your prayers this, this next week or so. Um, so, so he's off doing that and, um, we're gonna, you know, hold down the fort here on the podcast, I suppose. As I said, we're here to talk about the rector of Justin and we're going to talk about chapters six through nine in just a moment. But first I want to remind you about the ways that you can get in touch with the podcast. If you'd like to, you can find us on social media on Facebook and through the uh, Facebook group by searching Close Reads Podcast Discussion on Facebook. And then, of course, on Twitter and Instagram at Close Reads Pods. And if you want to send in a question of some kind via email or communicate about you know anything, any, you, want to, you want to criticize us or offer up some feedback, you can do so at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. Um, with that, let's dive in. Uh, Sarah Jane, you mentioned in an email to me that, that this book in some ways reminds you of Brideshead Revisited. I think that's what you said, right? Yeah, I'm teaching that at the moment, and I think there might be okay. some there might be some parallels. I've also been listening to your Close Reads podcast on that from a while ago, which has been really fun. Yeah, that's it's it's interesting how many people tell us that that was the series that you know kind of got them hooked on the podcast. Yeah, um, and you know, I was thinking about the other day. There were a lot of people on those episodes. My dad would show up. There, sometimes there were four people. Um, yeah. so I'm now I'm wondering if maybe the problem you know, or the, 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 uh, the, the, the uh, Andrew Kern factor on those episodes was what made people hooked now that I think about it. So maybe we should force him to come back every now and then. Um, but, but what did you, what are some of the similarities because that you found, because I, I found myself, I was, as I was reading these chapters, writing in the margins of my book multiple times, you know, similar to Bride's Head or, put a little star with the initials BR next to it as a reminder to myself. So I'm curious what, where you found um, some similarities. And for whatever reason, I'm very intrigued by similarities between books. I, I just love discussing one book by thinking about how it compares to other books that we love. It's, I don't know. I don't know exactly why I, that appeals to me, but you know. I'm the same. I think that it's, part, it's partly to do with learning analogously, isn't it? That hmm. drawing a comparison between two things can really help to shine light yeah i i was reading the um the the preface that war wrote to brighthead and and mm. he sort of says it's about the operation of divine grace and then somewhere else it's about memory that winged host and i think those two things are true about the rector of justin mm. it's almost like um a reflection on one man's journey uh into faith mm. um but it's it's different, I suppose, because in the Rector of Justin, we are viewing Prescott's faith from the outside in some ways. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah. Whereas in Brideshead, Ryder's kind of on the outside trying to understand about the faith of some of the other characters. So 
that's quite interesting. And then you've also yeah. got Brian as and maybe another comparative to someone like Ryder. Do, do you think that um, that the the um, multitude of perspectives in and points of view in um, the Rector of Justin is as a, a layer of complexity to what's going on that isn't in Broadhead, and I don't mean thematically; I just mean in terms of you know uh, narrative structure and and things like that. Um, that that helps you know add that or that kind of produces a deepness in the rector of Justin or do you think that these the, the sort of one man's perspective in Brideshead where we're, we're kind of deeply embedded in his own imagination and in his sort of soul even uh, makes that book more complex what I mean and again Brideshead is one of the great novels of the 20th century I would argue mm. so um, I don't want to say that this is as good or better than Brideshead but I'm curious I guess I'm just curious what you think of these these two approaches to point of view in terms of telling the story. I don't want to unfairly criticize Alkenkloss, but I, I think Brideshead is a better novel because it's artistically more coherent. I think that war has a greater vision and um, executes it with, with a, a more refined style, I think. I can see what Alkenkloss is trying to do here. And I think at the time, he was maybe quite desperate to win a Pulitzer Prize. So he was, it, it seems to me a little bit um, technically raw in a sense that there were certain things he felt he needed to do that would draw attention to the novel, such as all the literary references and then the, the switches in perspective which are great and ambitious, but I'm not sure they always work. Mm. Um, there's something about the, the complexity of old rider reflecting on young rider and the mm. way that that's framed, the way the narrative is framed in Brideshead is so subtle and powerful. Uh, you know, there are times when rider doesn't say things that he knows with hindsight um, mm. And the reader's very much kind of under the spell. Mm. Whereas I would do have a mixture of different perspectives and chronology in this novel, but I just find them uh, not, not as well woven together as Bright said. Mm. What what's your opinion on that? Well, I was thinking about how um, our kind of a, how it's hard to tell who, who are sort of primary. Um, point of view is supposed to be i mean i think it's it's supposed to be brian um but also if that's the case then the fact that it's that it's sort of in written in present tense sort of you know he's not looking back on his life like charles Ryder is he doesn't have um with the wisdom of experience the wisdom of time to look back on the situation he's kind of writing journal entries the day they happen the day the events in those entries happen mm-hmm. um i think that that does um perhaps um, keep Auchincloss from from I'm trying to think of how to put it um, being as universal as it as uh, maybe approaching things in a way that would be profound universally. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. Like, like um. And then when he does switch over to, you know, um, Horace or um, 
David Griscom, who we meet in in this this week's reading, those characters do have the value of memory. But as you said, it's hard to tell exactly what their um, what their purpose is, other than almost like a a sort of plot device. You know, yeah. because 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 Auchincloss needs to to give right. us. The, the the narrative of how the school was built and um you know there's a sort of uh, it, it, as i read it reminds me a lot of of citizen kane um and the way okay. the way he was telling the way the uh orson wells is trying to present the story of this larger than life figure with flashbacks and memories and all these you know these different perspectives of how people looked at him and things like that there's a certain formulaic structure to that um that desire Alkenclos has to, to give these different perspectives all on the same thing, which is Prescott. Prescott is the kind of unifying thing throughout the, the novel. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing that struck me is every time we encounter a new narrator, it starts with um, a little kind of snapshot of that narrator's life. You get them introduced yeah. first by Brian with a, a bit of a stock character description of how they look, which doesn't necessarily relate directly symbolically to what they're like. And then we get brief biography of the character autobiography and then the relationship to Prescott and that that kind of rigidity is just not the case in war he's he's much more in control of his material I think so yeah I want to talk about this because I was debating if this is you know as I was as I was reading it's late late last night like 12 30 in the morning as I was reading and I was thinking about whether this is a flaw in this book uh, and it seems like you would argue that it, that it, maybe it's a flaw or maybe it just keeps it from being, you know, maybe it's just sort of good, but keeps it from being great or something like that. I don't want to say that you're like, you said you didn't want to overly criticize Auchincloss, but you know. No, not at all. Do you mean, you mean the switching narrative perspectives? Yeah. Well, not, not necessarily the idea of the switching, but the way they're executed yeah. with, you know, the sort of stock description of the character as we meet yeah. him through Brian. And then when you get into the different narrator's voices, the narrator, those particular narrators focus a lot on themselves. So in chapter nine, David Griscom, when he's doing, when we're first getting his, his little bit there, he spends a lot of time talking about how he's a lawyer and how people think about him and that, that he's offended by the way people think about that. He's just some, you know, boring old conceited lawyer or something like that, but he, that there's much more mm-hmm. to him. And Horace spends a lot of time talking about himself in his section. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Brian spends a lot of time thinking about himself. So I was thinking about, you know, Maybe maybe that's the point though, um, because there's this bit, and I want to say, I want to say it's in seven when we get back to Brian's perspective after meeting. Um, no, eight. It's the very beginning of eight. So we're back. Yeah. In five, six, and seven, we've been with Horace. I, I want to say, and so now we're back with Brian's journal in chapter eight. And first of all, I was I was. As I was reading Horace, I was thinking, so are we going to get Brian's perspective? Because we know that Brian's the one that has been reading Horace's pages, right? Horace gives him the pages. So we're getting them because Brian's reading them. But Mm -hmm. at no point does Brian go back and do any of his own reflection. He doesn't do... We don't get the annotated version of Horace Havistock. Yeah, there's Um, no marginalia. Yeah, and I I was kind of intrigued by that. But then at the very beginning of eight, it says, so it's November 15th, 1940. Here I have been... Here I have been back at Justin for two months without a single entry, but the purpose of my journal is Dr. Prescott, and I have not seen him alone more than twice since the term started. And I was really intrigued by the line, the purpose of my journal is Dr. Prescott, because I kept thinking, 
is it the purpose of his journal really Dr. Prescott? Mm. Like when these people sit down to write, ostensibly what they're doing is writing the life of Prescott. All these three men that we've met so far have this grand goal to write the life of this larger than life figure. They want to write the the biography that's going to, you know, uh, memorialize, you know, yeah, the definitive one. Yeah, they don't they don't know how to make statues. They don't do bronze work. So they <laughs> they're gonna write them, they're gonna write the definitive biography. But in the end, what they really do is they end up talking about themselves. And so mm. and so I'm wondering if maybe that's kind of kind of the point that 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 these are that really it's about the 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 changing the 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 experiences, the the way this character you know, change these guys more than it is about how great of a guy he was or what he meant. Did you get kind of... Absolutely. I I think that's something the novel bears up, isn't it? When, uh, you know, Prescott's kind of assessing what his real contribution was. In the end, he he does seem to realise it's been how he's transformed individuals rather than how he's erected this kind of monument to his ideal of of what education should be. That's true. Mm. It's, it's interesting what you're saying as well about, um, it, well, Matt called it hagiography, which I thought was really astute. Um, and yeah, yeah, yeah. one thing that's really interesting is Prescott, I guess Prescott wants to control his reputation to an extent. He, he wants some sort of authority over how he's remembered. Um, and then yeah. all the characters are always trying to control how Prescott is viewed as well, especially someone like Griscom, who's mm. a real architect. He really wants to create a myth of Prescott, which is almost beyond what Prescott is actually like. And But Prescott being very sharp and wise, page 120, he says, they're trying to bury me with praise, to mummify mm. me with laudation. In the next months or years, if I'm spared, I shall be choked with testimonials. I'll become like a bad marble statue in a public park <laughs> with puckered brow and those wrinkled trousers that the Victorian sculptures used to carve so lovingly. So he's completely aware of his own monolith. <laughs> and doesn't, good, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, he doesn't want to be that sort of static. He doesn't want to be a souvenir in his own life. Mm. You mentioned in... It kind of when we were talking off air, like I think via email with the three of us, um, you, you said something like, do, "How great of a writer do you think that Auchincloss is?" And I mentioned that he—he's. This is one of those books that I think writers like, and I think it's because of a sentence like that. One, it's so consistent with the character of Prescott, and also it's just a nice bit of prose writing. <laughs> um, the mm. way he, you know, there's an energy to it. There's a, you know, the images that are used, but, it, but it's in a way that is consistent with the character. And it, it's, it's a little bit show offy in a sense, but in a, but in a way that Prescott would be in the way that he speaks. Um, so while I think there may be, you know, some inconsistencies here and there, or he may have, maybe he may miss the mark in terms of uh, the degree to which he's able to be as profound as he thinks, or as he's attempting to be. Mm. Um, I think bits like that are really lovely <laughs> bits of writing. Yeah, I agree. And there's also a moment in the novel where I think it's Prescott who says something like, you know, someone who's not an artist is the worst critic. And that's definitely me. I'm very happy <laughs> to criticise. I, I could never write a novel like this. <laughs> the other way in which um, Prescott is lionised in these chapters are through references to Hamlet. And there's a little mm. bit of an analogy developing through the text of, um, Prescott's Hamlet, 
Mm. I wondered if you'd picked up on that and what you thought about it. I've been waiting for the ghost of his father. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there was the bit where he he has a dream, right? Yeah. And his father comes and that's when he's uh, just about to dive into life with Eliza Dean. And he sort of gets called out of it and he's had this vision. Yeah. Well, yeah. So what are some other... Page 101. Hmm. He's... um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He has the ghost of his dead father yeah. remind him of his purpose, I suppose, a bit like the second appearance of Hamlet's father's ghost. Mm. And then there are a couple of other references to Hamlet. Um, at one point after this vision, Prescott says, Oh, what a it sounds like, oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. He says something <laughs> like that essentially. And then a few pages later, I think it's Prescott who says, oh, he was a bit, he could be inclined to be a bit like Hamlet now and again. And and um, I was thinking about the Horace Horatio similarity Ooh, there. Yes, the, yes. The, the idea of this sort of loyal, loyal <laughs> unto the end type friend. Um, yes, a man who is not passion slave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, that's right. And then, I mean, those names are pretty close to Hor- Horace Horatio. Horace and Horatio, it's yes. It's about as close as you can get to just finding a good, you know, late 19th century American name. <laughs> and I actually call him Horatio. <laughs> yes. It's on page 125. Um, Horace says, oh, he can be as gloomy as Hamlet when the mood seizes him. And then mm-hmm. the other similarities. Is that when he's talking to... Um, Oh, sorry, no, it's actually Griscom says it about yeah. Prescott. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's talking, he's talking to uh, Brian. To Brian, sorry. Yeah, that's right. So it's it's coming through in, in a lot of the different um, sections of narrative. So it's not it's not just one character viewing Prescott in this way. It's something that Alkingloss has woven through various different narrators. Mm. Um, and then I thought that the other thing that ties in with this is Hamlet really is a lot like Prescott because he's being watched by everybody in court and everybody's Mm. trying to construct their version of Hamlet and sort of uh, come up with their uh, reasons for why Hamlet's behaving in the way that he is. And Mm. and there's a sense that, you know, no one really knows the true Hamlet. Mm. And there's this sense in which he's, I mean, Prescott has this sort of, like you could see him being a regular regular soliloquizer, if I can put it that way. And he gets up and does these monologues. There's a, there's a sort of performative element to him. There's a sort of play within the play of his life. Um, that might be stretching it a little bit, but it, you know, it does That's seem that you know, he's a speaker. You know, he, he, he gets up and does these speeches and, and it talks about how he, uh, Horace talks about how he, um, or no, maybe it's Brian in the first couple of chapters. He talks about how there's a sort of performative element to the way he'll get up and recite he could recite the book of Matthew or something from memory, or he'd get up and he could recite when he was younger, he could recite entire books of the Bible to the boys in his, in his lectures, in his sermons, his homilies, mm-hmm. whatever. And Horace, and he says, well, I can't do that anymore. I'm getting old now. But, um, you know, there's this, he's very, he's very consumed with the concept of what his own performances says, not just about him, but about the school and about, and he's very aware of the way his performances move and, um, influence the boys that are under his charge. Exactly. And as a headmaster, he cannot 
just like Hamlet, he can't do anything private that doesn't have some kind of public consequence. He is mm. the, the role of headmaster. He says at some point in the novel, you know, it, it takes a terrible toll on one's personality to be a headmaster. Mm. Um, and I think the other great similarity between Hamlet and Prescott is how they are, as we said last time, inextricably bound up with their fathers and what their fathers mm. desire or require of them. And and when when Prescott has this kind of restoration of his faith, he says um, one of the things that really fascinates him is how the son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the father do. I came mm. from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of the father, the will of him that sent me. And And is there a sense that that's what Hamlet has to do and that's also what Prescott has to do? Mm. Mm. That's, that's on page one of one as well yeah i've got much of that page marked <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah where is that what where is that bit though um, it's right at the top of the page it's where oh, he yeah, says yeah, oh yeah. i've been reading the gospels every night since i he says he lost his faith at oxford and um this is the thing that strikes him as true the son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the father do and he says that's divinely assured selflessness. And then one of the virtues taught throughout um, Justin Martyr is, is the is public service, is doing things for others. Mm. I w- you just mentioned he lost his faith at Oxford and it sparked a question in my mind. I mean, the fact that he, lo- he, that he lost his faith at Oxford has to be, mean something. Um, yeah, and I don't know what you think of that. Can... Does he actually lose his faith? Yeah, I was because, and that's where the the comparison to Charles Ryder comes up because yeah. Ryder comes into the situation. He he steps into the the flight home as an agnostic or whatever, right? He doesn't. Yeah, he just has no experience with it. It's not. It's not. He's more like Horace, where all right, he's not even like he's actually not even like Horace, as I recall. Where at least Horace's parents, you know. They they knew that they needed to pretend, right? They have a formality, um, of, yeah, tradition of faith, yeah. And so Ryder comes in basically saying, "This is all nonsense." Um, and and of all people, it's Sebastian and Julia Flight who, along with the entire Brideshead, you know, mm. whole cohort, <laughs> that that reveals to him the value of it. Um, but and so in that way, there's a. I was thinking how the conversations between Horace and and Prescott in what is it six and seven remind me a lot of many of the conversations that Sebastian and Charles Ryder have in Brideshead. Mm. Um, there's one on, I'm flipping right now. It's the one at the beginning of six, actually. Um, 81. Yeah. And they talk about, they're, they're talking about, um, you know, Havistock even says today, of course it couldn't happen because nobody has any faith or if they do, they find it fashionable to talk about. (laughs) And then they go into these 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 dialogues, and you can tell Havistock has this sort of. He says, "Well, it's almost like he uh, gets himself a big. It's like when he finds out that he got his faith that Prescott got his faith back. He pours himself a big mm. whiskey and just sits down and says, All right, tell me.' <laughs> and yeah. he's sort of the part one of that, where he pours himself a big whiskey. He's like, All right, tell me about your lost faith. There's, and uh, go ahead. There's a moment, isn't there, where he says something like. I could kind of get along without God myself, but I couldn't possibly get along in a world with a Frank without God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing that's different, I think, between the religion of 
of Horace and Frank's actual faith is that Frank can robustly question and search his faith. And he's not afraid to do that. Whereas Horace finds that really frightening. He says, one certainly did not have to swallow the Bible, but a great many reputable people had. And out of respect for them, if nothing else, one should maintain a discreet silence. Let's not ask too many questions because it might not stand up to questioning. But of course, the truth will. So it's not a problem for Frank and he comes through it. But that's um, really interesting. He's not, he, um, there's a line that where he, where um, Brian describes Griscom as someone who seems like the kind of person you need to argue with. <laughs> yeah. And um, I was thinking about that in comparison to Prescott because Prescott is the kind of person who is not afraid to push back. We see that in his, uh, his own relationship with, with Joet or Jowett at, at mm. Oxford where he, you know, he's, he's not afraid to, he's, he's intellectually curious enough, but also honest with himself enough to, push back on things that you know it might even seem obvious to him at first and there's he's got a sort of intellectual courage that the truth as you said can stand up against and so go ahead well he he would just be the the worst kind of student wouldn't he in a way (laughs) also the best but (laughs) i was gonna ask you about that (laughs) what a nightmare to teach frank and then it seems that frank doesn't deal very well either with the kinds of students who are a bit like him who who want to question and um, want robust answers for things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the relationship with Jow is really interesting. Did you? What did you think? The page about Platonism and how they have a different conception of what Christianity is. Yeah, that is. Um, there were a lot of cut. Richelieu came up a lot. <laughs> I don't even way. know who that is. You have to tell me. I, I think it was the um, somebody to do with the Thirty Years' War. Yeah, I mean, wasn't he um, the French? Um, French, uh, was it a bishop? Um, the great thing is that we can, we can, we can Google this. And, uh, <laughs> I, I refuse. <laughs> I won't Google it. <laughs> I, mean, I think he was a cardinal. I think he was the cardinal, uh, French cardinal, um, that was, you know, in the King's ear. Uh, but yeah, so I, I think, are you talking about 85 when you mention the conversation about Plato 84 and 85? Is that it? Jowett yeah. took Frank more seriously yeah. as an aggressive and possibly dangerous red Indian. And during mm. that same first dinner, Frank actually suggested a correction in our host's famed translation of Plato. Had he been wrong, it would have been the end of their relationship, but he was right. And as I have said, Jowett liked scholars or Jowett. I don't know how to, I don't know. What yeah. Jowett. That's right. I thought, I thought it was interesting because Justin Martyr, who the school is founded upon is then, um, a sort of theologian famous for bringing together Greek thought and Christian thought. But here it seems that um, Frank is, is very, it says one must make a clean choice between God and mammon at that time it was mammon. And that one of the things Frank finds um, that he can't bear is this idea that there might be a compromise or a kind of synthesis between the two. But then oh. Justin Martyr is a character that he founds a school upon hmm. but page 20 page 85 yeah yeah Jowett admired philosophy frank cultivated burning zeal and even the structure of that sentence with a semicolon seems to suggest that you know they're not these are things that cannot be reconciled hmm. but then does frank later reconcile them i don't know 
to one Christianity had been better stated by Plato than by Christ mm. to the other Christ was all the, the idea of Frank as a zealot is a, is really fascinating because as a teacher, there's a sort of, at least at the very beginning, we get a sort of sense that he's sort of a rigid uh, figure, rigid, but beloved figure, you know, sort of a, uh, have you seen the Browning version, the play or the movie? Of the Browning version? No. So it's about this very rigid headmaster that most of the boys don't like. And then he realizes that he's kind of made mistakes and, you know, changes his ways. I think goodbye, Mr. Chips. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, But so what I was going to, what I was going to say is that in some ways at the beginning of the book, he he seems like as he's aged, he is sort of uh, like, like if I had read the first two chapters, Hmm. And then read here that he was a zealot or the, you know, associated the idea of zealousy with him. Then I, that would have, that would have seemed not, you know, commensurate with the guy, with the actions of the guy that I've, that I'm getting in the first few chapters. So somewhere along the way, he sort of buries or, you know, I got buries is probably the best word. Actually, he sort of buries whatever spirit of, whatever zealous spirit he has. Um, and, and I, and I, one of the questions I've been thinking about is, do you, do you think that happens in the name of, um, because he feels like he needs to be a certain person to run a school and to be some, to be a certain sort of consistent, um, disciplinarian figure, uh, for the, for the boys and for the sake of the school. And so he sort of buries that part of himself, or do you mm-hmm. think he changes like as the, as an old man here, do you think he still has that spirit of that zealot spirit underneath underneath him? I think I think he changes as a result of real life, and I have read the whole novel now, so I I think it shows that his his ideals are not borne out by the reality of his own family, and so mm. does he does that seems to deepen his faith from this early phase of being a zealot, where he's more like. Um, Bridey flight, for example, mm. um, and then he becomes, yeah, mu- much more um, sympathetic, compassionate, and some of the the cruelty and absolutism of his early years do seem to change as a result of what he's experienced. Because he has to forgive and forgive and forgive throughout the novel, doesn't he? Mm, yeah, and he, you know, it seems like there's this. When you think about Griscom, for example, as a young in his experiences, what we read about in chapter nine, yeah, it seems like he even is saying to Griscom, "You're going to have to forget. You have to stop worrying so much about your father." Which is which he sort of has to say. He's sort of saying, "If you're going to get on from this, you sort of have to just forgive him and move on." And there's this sense by which he almost is saying, "You have to just forgive people and go on to the next thing. Otherwise, you get so consumed with the things that they did against you." He says on page 139, towards the end of that chapter, Prescott says to Davy, which he calls him affectionately, that he should bury his father's old reputation under the monument of his own new one. Which, um, I don't know, does that contradict a little bit what we saw of the Prescott earlier, who's riling against the idea that there would be a monument to him constructed by other people? I find there are these inconsistencies <laughs> in the novel, which perhaps not are not a fault, but more show how 
different characters have different conceptions of the same person or that people are inconsistent. Well, and interestingly, that would be something that he, that Prescott said to Davy from mm. the perspective, but, but it's from, it's Brian remembering the conversation. Whereas here it's yeah. Davy himself remembering Prescott speaking to him. Mm. Um, and there is, he, he, he takes Prescott's words in this section as he says, he calls them a rejection. I, I mean, I don't think he, he doesn't mean it in a, you know, total rejection sense, but Prescott basically tells him you, you shouldn't teach here because the only reason you want to teach here is to escape the world. You need to go, you need to go out and, and build a new reputation for yourself. So you don't have to hide here behind a broken reputation. Mm. And there is a sort of um, coldness in that from Prescott, but at the same time, he's, you know, he's not, he's never been afraid to tell the truth. <laughs> and he's got a bit of an issue if every single boy who goes through school wants to come back as a teacher. Yeah, I suppose <laughs> that's true, yeah. They can't all be recruited. <laughs> <laughs> because um, there's, that's really interesting. There's also another moment when Eliza Dean is talking to Horace about the future of Prescott and him becoming a minister, where they make this deal where Eliza Dean says, okay, well, I won't marry him so long as you don't become a teacher at the school. Mm. And there's, um, there's a, a kind of, symp- I, I'm developing a sympathy for Prescott where he has people who either want to come and work for him or write his life or both at the same time. And there's mm. this magnetism to a headmaster, much, which must be very difficult to control and manage, I suppose. Mm. Do you think that, I mean, this is kind of a outside of the book question, but do you think that that's something that is that all great headmasters have to have? Maybe is it is a question the book's been making me ask, which is what makes the great headmaster? And there's definitely an aura or a persona that surrounds a headmaster that has to be beyond or different to who they are when they sit down and have supper with their kids on a Saturday night sort of thing. I don't know. Have you met many headmasters or what do you think makes a great headmaster? <laughs> uh, well, those are two different questions. Yes. <laughs> I have yeah. met my share of, of headmasters of schools, big and small. Um, there was a, um, a man named Tony Jarvis, F. Washington Jarvis was his name, but everybody called him Tony. Um, and he was a headmaster at a very large, boarding school here in, in, in New England. And I'm trying to remember what it's called now, but he won our Paideia prize during the years when I was in high school. And I remember meeting him and physically he was not like Prescott at all. He was kind mm-hmm. of a slender guy. Um, not real tall. Um, but he had that, he had this sort of personality that kind of owned a room and he, and he was the kind of person who, when you spoke to him, you always felt like, uh, he, really, really cared about what you were saying. Right. And I think that, you know, you know, Prescott is described as this sort of larger than life physical figure. There's something sort of like Odysseus about him. I feel like even though Um, he isn't tall, he's true, 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 true. Yeah. Yeah. But, but there's a physical, um, you know, sort of he's, he was athletic and strong Mm -hmm. and, you know, he, 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 I don't know that he was intimidating, but he wasn't, you know, physically meek, so to speak. Um, but but this Tony Jarvis guy, he had this sort of dynamic personality where as a as a I was the age of many of his, that many of his students would have been. 
And the way he spoke to me was, you know, in a way that seemed like he genuinely cared. And then interestingly for years after that, when he would speak to my dad or whatever, he would write, he would ask about me. And I thought that was, it was really interesting because you could tell he just had a genuine care for, you know, young men who, for whatever reason he felt like, you know, or for young men that were in that age and that they needed the help. And, you know, a lot, it's interesting because nowadays I think a lot of times people's first instinct is to say that that's creepy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, well, which is maybe a misrepresentation. I think headmasters have to first and foremost care about the students as individuals. I suppose that that should be the bottom line. And that is certainly what Prescott is like. And then the the other thing in my experience of headmasters is that they have to be the consistent line of discipline, which I think is shown in this novel as well. Hmm. But then they also have to have a vision or an ideal for what the school is about, what it's striving for. And those things have to be consistent. And that must be extremely hard, especially in a school like um, Justin Martyr, where they grow to having about 400 students. And I mean, in a school like the one I work in, there are 1300 students. So Mm. that's a lot of decisions being made all the time. Mm. Hey, I just want to take a quick break to uh, give you a word from our sponsors, our friends over at Gutenberg College. We all know we live in a messy and complex world, yet so often we oversimplify critical issues about humanity, culture, and ultimate reality. Bombarded with sound bites, biased research, and fragmented narratives, we may wonder how we even begin thinking about today's issues and how to live a worthy life in the face of them. But what if there were a way to get clarity about the causes of our problems and the many solutions proposed to them? What if there were a way to understand people, culture, and yourself at a deeper level so that you could live with purpose, integrity, and wisdom? At Gutenberg College, there is. Gutenberg College in Eugene, Oregon offers a unique BA in liberal arts grounded in the great books and a biblical worldview. Authors like Plato, Einstein, and St. Augustine pen the works that have shaped the world as we know it. And theirs are just a few of the deep voices Gutenberg students hear as they join a conversation that has continued for thousands of years. When you understand the past, you can thrive in the present and navigate the future. You can know how to care for others, serve with confidence in your vocation, and stay true to what matters most. To find out more about how a Gutenberg education can help you cultivate wisdom that will serve you for a lifetime, visit www.gutenberg.edu preview. Again, that's www.gutenberg.edu preview. And now back to the episode. So, okay, interestingly, I just, I just looked up, uh, I wanted to find out what school this was. Uh, he was from... Roxbury Latin School. Oh, yes. Ah. And he was... Go ahead. Well, that's the school that um, Phillips, the Philip Brooks, the bishop who Prescott really admires and who gets Ah. Prescott back into teaching. I think that's the school that he went to. Okay, okay. Who becomes the bishop of Boston. So his his obituary um, in the Boston Globe interestingly, says that as Roxbury Latin's inspiring headmaster for 30 years, the Reverend F. Washington Jarvis III viewed every student as a singular subject. Mm. Takes infinite time and patient effort to unlock, he wrote in 2001. Searching for the key that unlocks the mystery of a student is something that never fails to fascinate and challenge. I never tire of it. Um, And this is the oldest continuous school in existence in North America, interestingly. It's um, a brilliant school. We, we have an exchange with it, and I've heard amazing things about Roxbury Latin. He was in, it was an Episcopal school, I guess, too. Like, mm-hmm. uh, like, which is what 
this school is, right? Or uh, he, does he, he... This, yeah, Justin Martyr is an Episcopalian yeah. school, yeah. Um, and it compares to something like St. Paul's Concord, where, well, i tell you who would be a really interesting person to talk to about this book, would be David Hicks. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, actually, he's the one that put my um, my dad and some people here onto this book because he talks about this book in his... Uh, in his book, Norms and Nobility. Um, and so that's why people started reading it at first. I need to go back to Norms and Nobility that now, now that I've read this and be the, more aware of the to it. <laughs> yeah, it's a brilliant book. I loved it. I, um, it's the kind of book as a teacher, I think you need to read every year and just absorb. <laughs> or just be constantly reading it a paragraph at a time. <laughs> yeah, and quoting it. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So where were we? <laughs> um, we, we were sort of discussing why Davy wanted to come back and teach at uh, Justin Martyr, that it becomes a bit of a sanctuary for some of the boys there. Others absolutely loathe and revile it and can't wait to get out. Oh yeah. And kind of escape from Prescott and from the influence of Prescott. Um, do you think, okay. So, I was thinking about that in connection to say any classroom. Um, Cause I'm sure you've dealt with students who, who love you and um, love your classes. And then you probably have some students who, you know, you'd rather have not had them in your class. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe that's, maybe it's not so true at a school like yours. I'm not sure, but I think it's true all over the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some students are just good and some students are just bad and some students are even good students can be difficult and even, quote bad students can be kids that kids that you love um but i was wondering if it does does the does the sort of uh paradox that you're describing there in, in the way that some kids can't wait to get out from under the the authority of prescott and some kids uh absolutely adore him does that speak to does that make him a to speak to his greatness or to his flaws that's a good question. Yes, because ideally, I suppose a teacher, you are a role model and you want your students to be like the good things that you're modeling, but you also want them to excel and go beyond you. Mm. And it, yeah, there is a sense, isn't there, that Prescott can be a bit oppressive. He can be a bit limiting. Do you think setting the boys free to, to be who they are? Yeah, to sort of be themselves, but but you know, like he he's very zealous in terms of mm. the promotion of virtues and things like that. Uh, in some ways, that makes him sort of rigid as a personality, as an authority figure. So obviously, it's good that he is he wants these boys to grow into a certain kind of man. Like he wants to mm. pursue certain virtues. But do you think that he that he um, do, he pursues that? for them and, and kind of <laughs> ask them to pursue it while not attending to the sort of individual personhood of each boy? Yeah, I think that maybe what we're into here is a question of the rules that he requires the boys to submit to. So there's a wonderful phrase somewhere in the novel about the beauty of a boy who's free because he can govern himself. Yeah. And what we find is that the boys who accept the 
the rules and the code, the kind of honor code that Prescott establishes, are, can be free. But those who question the rules themselves, they're, they're the ones that get into trouble. So there's a sort of there's a sense in which the there has the presuppositions have to be accepted that mm. the boys have to simply agree with Prescott that what he says is good for them is is what is good for them. Mm. And those who don't agree with that, then then they're caught in this struggle of of will against Prescott. And Prescott's always going to win. He's mm. so wise, isn't he? Mm. But and, I, I don't know, he, I think, what do you think of the the kind of virtues and ideals that he holds? Are they correct? Well, <laughs> uh, that's a complicated question, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, it's interesting because I think most of the time, intellectually, I think when I hear him espouse some sort of virtue... I often am think, well, that's old fashioned, or I think, yes, that's right on. Like my first, I have a first kind of guttural instinct response. And then as I think about it more, or as I read it more, I think, well, maybe he's being a little bit too um, dogmatic in his, in the way he thinks about that virtue, or maybe he's not understanding how virtues get sometimes like there's, you can state a virtue and then you have to live a virtue. That's right. And that might be where there's some, some gray area or where some of the complications in terms of maybe he prepares the boys to restate virtues and understand them, but can they, can they live them out? I mean, but, but how is that not the problem with education in general? Isn't that sort of. absolutely, And the difficulty of being a headmaster as well. Yeah. I mean, it's parent, it's parenting too. I feel like, you know, it's, it's, it's Mm. parenting, it's teaching, it's, it's being authority in any way because I mean, people, you know, people say, do as I say, not as I do. Right. But, and, and that's sort of, cliche but also it speaks to the difficulty of trying to tell someone that something is right while also understanding that living what is right is not very easy mm. um and, and i think a, some, go ahead go ahead uh there's an amazing moment in chapter eight where we find when griscom comes back to visit the school and brian goes for a walk with griscom and <laughs> press yeah. the headmaster and we find that you know, Prescott has softened a little bit and he's now allowing boys to play tennis rather than baseball. <laughs> yeah. Um, because he can see that there is a virtue in that and he's actually learned something from Bryant. So he is he is dogmatic, but then he does also sometimes show this kind of understanding and willingness to change. Yeah, in some ways I think that makes him more sympathetic as a figure because mm-hmm. then when people attack him, you sort of get this sense that... <sighs> Um, maybe maybe those people have good reason to be upset with him or to have been offended by him or 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 whatever, however you want to put it. And yet at the same time, you realize that this is a character who who can evolve or who who tries to evolve, who tries to be understanding, even in his even as his dogmatism, if that's the word we want to use, sort of is his guiding light in terms of how he lives his own life. And so that, that, that makes him complex, which makes him more sympathetic, I think, than he could be. He, he's not purely this harsh authoritarian figure, nor is he sort of a uh, completely um, soft, just loving sort of go with, you know, mm. be blown by the, by the, by the winds of, of whatever was in fashion at the time sort of figure that was a weird sentence but i think you get what i'm saying (laughs) no i do and horace calls him quick quixotic if that's how you Mm. say it doesn't he at least 
couple of times. Yeah, um, I, I was I noticed that too. That word that uh, there's a kind of mercurial quality to Prescott, which perhaps our various narrators um, seek to reconcile because they have their own idea of what Prescott should be like. And everybody's in a way trying to control Prescott apart from Brian. And I think there's a point early in the novel, maybe the bit we looked at last week where Brian says, you know, perhaps I'm uniquely qualified to write about Prescott because I'm outside of Justin Martyr and I have a, a kind of detachment that will make me a bit more objective. Yeah, I think that's something that uh, Griscom actually says to him. He says, because uh, Brian, yeah. he says, you should just do it. And that's why he gives him his pages. And Brian says, well, I'm not a Justinian. And he says, that's, that's exactly why you should do it. Mm. But it is interesting how quickly Brian becomes enamored with Prescott from the very beginning of the book. And oh, yeah, I, he loves him, doesn't he? And I, and I wonder if part of it is because he has a reputation that he sort of lives up to right away. He has this sort of mysterious figure that that Brian sets about trying to understand. And his entryway into the good graces of Prescott is through Prescott's wife. Um, mm. he, he doesn't... He, he doesn't... It's, it's true that he doesn't have the years of being Prescott's student and proving himself to him that way and having built a relationship with him through the classroom and through that mentor sort of apprenticeship relationship. And so he is an outsider in that way. And the reason, the way that he gets close to him is by building a relationship with someone who Prescott loves very dearly. I, I, I find that interesting because that the dynamic of the relationship thus is, is quite different than say um, David Griscom's or Horace's, who has this long-term relationship where they were sort of there for each other when they needed them. In this mm. case, Brian is there for, for um, Prescott by being there for his wife when she needed him. Um, yeah. And it was, it was an act of selfless service, which is something yes. that Prescott would really revere in mm. another person. Yeah. 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 That's good. I thought that the, the chapter where Horace tells us a bit about New York when Prescott briefly becomes a railway man yeah. and falls in love with Eliza Dean. I found that really interesting moment where yes, Horace absolutely. has a strange kind of control over Prescott. It's almost as if he hmm. has um, a sort of hand in his destiny, if you like. But then he says this really revealing thing, which is something like perhaps the imp that had given um, Prescott the vision of his father was also operating through me. And he essentially derails the marriage with Eliza Dean and sets Prescott free to go off and do his divinity degree and set up his school. Mm. Mm. But he, but Prescott um, was also set up with Eliza Dean in the first place by Horace. So there's this kind of orchestrating power that Horace has in the early part of the novel because he's obviously also the one who turns up at the school and says, look, you need to quit while you're ahead. That's really interesting. He, Horace had played such a big hand in ending Prescott's relationship with Eliza Dean. And then yeah. he ends, so he, he ends that marriage before it starts. Yeah. And after his marriage to Harriet ends, he shows up and ends his marriage to the school, essentially. Mm. You know, two yes. different ends of his life. He has this strange sort of prophetic ability to to know what steps need to be taken. I don't know. And then there's also, as you were saying, this other moment where 
characters get close to Prescott by becoming friends with people who are close to Prescott. And Harriet Winslow, who has decided that she will marry Prescott, begins by befriending Haverstock and bringing him around for supper at her house. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know, is it that Prescott is kind of inaccessible in some way? It does seem like even... Eliza Dean and even Harriet, what little we know of her at this point, they don't totally. It, it's it seems like they're in love with a sort of um, surface magnetism or a mystery mm. that that he bears, and that they they don't are they have a hard time getting, you know, really understanding who he is. Like even Eliza Dean, you know, she's shocked to discover that he wants to be a minister, which is sort of. You know, like if you if you really knew him, would that be a surprise? That would be the one thing you would know about him. Yeah. Right. And so and so on the one hand, that could be because he doesn't open himself up or because she's not, you know, astute enough or there wasn't enough time. So I don't mean to, you know, I don't mean to just say, well, she doesn't she's not very smart. I'm not criticizing her. Um, Mm. There is something about him that there is this sort of magnetism that's sort of there's a mysterious magnetism in him, which I guess goes back to the the what the quixotic his quixotic nature or yes. his mercurial nature, which by the way is a word that should exclusively be spoken by people who speak like you speak and not by people on my side <laughs> of the ocean. Um, <laughs> there are many moments in this novel where I'm thinking, oh, that, what, how do I say this in a, a kind of Boston twang? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I learned about hazing. That was good. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure hazing happens at Eaton. Uh, it's just probably called something different. <laughs> Although maybe they've well, cracked down I mean, on nobody it. Nobody must know about it or it would be cracked down on. They yeah, used exactly. to have it. As, um, so you can go into the museum here and see what life was like in Eaton hundreds of years ago. And they had a mm. system called fagging, hmm. which is where the younger boys, it was their job to be the kind of servant of the older boys. And that would involve things like polishing their shoes um, bringing firewood to their rooms to make the fire, toasting the bread for them, even things like warming the loo seat for them. So, <laughs> <laughs> huh. Fagging was a thing, which it's, was I've... stopped. Um, when was it stopped? I should know this. I don't know the exact date, but probably more recently than you would think. Yeah, I was going to say, what, like after World War II? <laughs> yeah, probably something like that. I imagine because they would have even had fireplaces in their rooms up until then. Obviously, they don't now. What do they have now? Do they, I mean, are they all new buildings? <laughs> but I, but, well, sorry. I guess what I meant to say is, are they fireplaces that were covered up or is it all new buildings? No, I think they were just covered up. The okay. buildings are the same. Yeah. But that sort of hierarchy, um, that hazing, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's something in Justin Martyr that I think we're going to see changing as well as time goes on in the novel. Yeah. Um, that's that made me think of something, and then I forgot what it was in ah, seconds. So there was something you said earlier about Eliza, which was that you know you didn't want to be unkind to her. Um, yeah, I have a couple things to say about her. So you go first, and then I'll I'll. Well, just generally, I was interested in what what do you think Alkinclos is is doing with his presentation of some of the female characters because I can't work out. I was going to ask you that. <laughs> if he's is he satirizing? Uh, high society's sort of potentially dismissive view of women or is he just reaffirming it i'm not sure yeah so um i I think there's questions of that even with harriet as well and her you know how havistock sort of describes her as a sort of 
you know, she wants to just follow her, follow uh, the, Fitz, the Fitzgeralds around, you know, around Paris. Um, yeah, and the only reason like she a, is that she's, you know, the great niece of Emerson. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's at least uh, appealing to someone like Havistock and and um, perhaps for Prescott as well. Mm. Yeah, I don't know because. Okay, so through chapter nine, at least, I feel like we have, well, we've gotten everything we're going to get of Eliza, I think. Yeah, she's my favorite female character in the novel. Yeah, um, we don't know a lot about Harriet yet, so we've got some sort of incomplete characters. We do get, we get to know Eliza quite a bit, and I was struck by Eliza and Havistock have a conversation, I want to say it's in seven, about materialism. Yes, well, we're, she, we're both egoists, is it that she, one? Yeah, and she gives this line that is so similar to what Griscom talks about when he's talking about his wife. His wife says they're all, uh, you know, they're all just materialists, and he says Griscom says, "Well, I suppose everyone's a materialist except her." Mm. Um, and so it's so similar to what Eliza is saying. Um, and it seems like in Prescott, Prescott is sort of in the midst of he, he's sort of either battling materialism all the time, or he is. Um, in between people who are battling materialism, the sort mm. of the sort of question of the degree to which they're either battling that in themselves or they're actively battle, battling it in the public, <laughs> in sort of the public in public life, and he's Definitely. caught in between those two poles. I feel like, and isn't his whole school, um, in a way, a revolt against materialism, and yet he's dependent. Mm also on yeah. the great wealth of his alumni to perpetuate the school. So that's mm. right. That is a central tension of the novel. And, and then, I've heard it, go ahead. Um, I, I've heard it um, discussed by critics as well as a more general criticism of uh, Alkinclos that, you know, the only reason he's able to even criticize this high society in Boston and New York at all is because he's kind of standing on the foundations of it, which is a slightly ridiculous idea because you don't have to be on the outside of something to criticize it. Yeah. I mean, how can, uh, honestly, you're, can you criticize it if you're not to some degree on the inside? <laughs> like you have to experience the, I mean, how do you make the case if you don't know what's actually happening? It's mm. kind of, yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> did people say that uh, Dickens shouldn't criticize, <laughs> criticize the England of his time because parts he was only lived in, he was only part of part of it. Or, I mean, I don't, I don't know how you... Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Shakespeare couldn't criticize the kings because cause he, was a, he, cause he wasn't a king. I don't... Right. Oh, but, uh, but then, you know, would we go so far as to say Alkinclos doesn't write women very well because he isn't one? <laughs> well, to be fair, how many male writers actually wrote great female characters in the course oh, of... Oh, Thomas Hardy could. Well, sure, but so I guess you said one. <laughs> um, and Henry James, I think. Yeah, but I guess the, there's not that many over the course of history. Like, I think Wendell Berry captures okay. some women, but the point is there's not a lot of men who capture women really powerfully, which I'm not saying should not be a criticism of Alkenklaas. I just find that the women in the novel, if they're beautiful, they're lame. If they're... Um... Well, well, I mean, is that how you read Eliza? Is she meant to be lame? I mean, she's beautiful, right? And that's why I like Eliza. She's the only one who isn't maimed or killed in some way or dies. I guess they say that, well, that's true. I guess they say that Harriet, yeah, well, yeah, Eliza has agency. She does things. She makes decisions that change change the course yeah. of the book. And there's her that life moment and... of defiance where she gets out of the carriage and walks for half an hour. 
because she won't compromise and then she gets back in the carriage at the end. <laughs> and then in the end, she won't give, you know, Havistock gives her name as a potential donor and she... They that's it, yeah. She's an ambassador abroad and she just ignores the letter. So that I, that's the character in the novel, I think, as a, as a woman who is a bit more kind of believable. We're told that Harriet Winslow, who's obviously very intelligent and of a high status, but she's plain... Griscom's wife is very beautiful, but she's got limp. Um, and there are, I don't know, there's always some, they're always maligned in some way. But okay, let me push back on this a little bit. Go on. For the sake of conversation, at least. <laughs> um, I'm thinking, I haven't thought about this before, but which is to say, I'm not sure that I have a case to make, but I'm going to try. <laughs> um, isn't, it, isn't it true though, that for example, when we meet Griscom's wife, we meet him through, we meet her through him. And so some of these, some of these, some of what we're getting might yeah, be yeah. a limitation of point of view or a sort of bad perspective of the male character who's describing the female right. character. Yeah. And so maybe, maybe we shouldn't criticize Auchincloss as much as what is, as much as we should say, this is what it tells us about this man. That's right. Or that that's what Alcantara is trying to show is that there's maybe a bit of a short-sightedness among the men in that society. And that maybe, in fact, he does that very well. And yeah, that's true. It's funny that you bring this up because I'm well aware that the majority of our listenership is women. And oh. so I, 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 I spend a lot of time trying to be aware of that when I choose books and I try to choose women writers, although we are in a accidentally in a little run of male writers. Um, but and the place the thing is by all male writers. <laughs> I don't have any problem with that at all. I just found that in this novel, women are not presented particularly well. And I just couldn't work out if it was Alkinkloss showing that, that that's something that needs to be satirized or held up to the light or whether he was just unable to kind of present women who are complex. So, so... When we get Harriet through Brian's perspective, hmm. he seems very, he's intrigued by her. He respects her. He's very sad for her. Um, Absolutely. So, I agree. But, but she dies within the first few chapters of the novel. Yeah. Um, but just because someone dies doesn't make them, you know, we all die. So... <laughs> Yeah, no, I just think that, it's, <laughs> that she doesn't develop much in the novel. Yeah, um, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Because yeah. Alkenkloss kind of gets gets her out of the picture quite early on, so we can focus on... Do you, do you, so do you read that just as kind of a narrative narrative conceit? He just has, he introduces her and then that's her, her role is to get Brian close to, close to um, Prescott and then throughout the novel maybe offer a little bit about who Prescott is, but that she doesn't have... Yeah, I think we could read it. Device. We could read it in that way a bit, but then I suppose we could also say that's true of most of the characters. So, yeah. Hmm. True of the male characters as well. It's interesting that our most dynamic female character, you know, Eliza, is we're getting her through the perspective of Havistock, who is more or less in love with her to some degree. That's right, yeah. So So it's a very sympathetic portrait. Yeah, and it's a and the perspective of someone that he's remember he's in love he's he is remembering the version of her that he was in love with. Um whereas Griscom 
it's kind of the opposite. He's remembering, he's, he's writing about her as this person he's been married to forever and seems to have sort of some negative, it's the negative, the negative side of her maybe, um, comes out more than it should. Like, I don't think that he is as magnanimous to her as perhaps he would be if he remembered what she was like when he was, when she was young. Um, Mm. which I think is, that may actually be a flaw in the novel. Like I, th- I think maybe there's a little bit of a, a cynicism there, um, but it also might be that Griscom himself is sort of uh, for all his rom- the rom- the romanticism that he wants to espouse and that he wants to be a part of. He kind of has a sort of cynicism that overwhelms that. Um, maybe it's because of, maybe it's because he was a lawyer. <laughs> True. Um, and that he, in a way, he regards a lot of his family in that way, that they're just a sort of these accoutrements that have to be provided for. Mm. Um, mm. And also the way that Eliza's presented by... Um, Horace. Can I say waspish Horace? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can say anything you want. That, that's not a kind of politically charged term. I really don't know. I don't want to stumble into something that's... I think, no, 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 no. You can call him waspish. In, in a culture that I don't fully know. Um, Although waspish in this time was different than waspish now, but yeah, but yeah. Yes. Well, I think that, you know, she's the, the things that Eliza is presented as being admirable for are really not things we should admire anyway. So Horace's idea of what a woman is, is, is kind of a bit skewed. There's that really interesting line where it talks it talks about who who is it that says maybe it's brian talking to griscom i'm not so sure they're talking about the um elizabethans maybe uh, who was it yeah that's griscom and brian yeah and he says maybe um i can see it on the page oh he's here it is 124 yeah i um, I find I don't believe in the things they believed in. I don't see it's so vitally important for women to be chased. Mm-hmm. I mean, so much more important than anything else. And I don't think it's so terrible to die. Why were they so obsessed with symbols of transiency, grinning skulls and graveyards? I know we have only a few petty moments of mortal time, and I think it's quite enough. And then Griscom sort of, you know, goes on and says, don't you think of Prescott as a bit of an Elizabethan? But that, there's that interesting line, mm-hmm. I don't, see it's so vitally important for women to be chaste as what the Elizabethans did. Um, and that's, that's Brian there, right? Yeah. That's Brian replying to Griscom. Yeah. So there's, there's lots of conversation about w- what women should be like, which I guess is the history of time. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Among there's men. Also, there's a, a one few comments that stood out to me. So one was Horace says men are always more beautiful in the company of other men, something like that. Then, um, mm. Prescott says, oh, yes, well, I've told Eliza that I want to be a minister and, and have a school, but not in much detail because women hate the abstract, you know. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask you about that line. <laughs> and then the, the other line was from Horace where he said, um, I knew in that moment for the first time in my life with absolute clarity what a woman was like. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah those to, to me these are the lines where where um the you Alkenclass has to be winking a little bit like a character who would say that is pretty ridiculous right yeah it's got to be a joke and any but of course do, do women say things like that in books 
Like other female characters in literature that you, you can think of who have said, I knew in the moment ex- what a man exactly. Yeah, I, under- I, I understood Madden. Yeah. Or I hate the abstract. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would be hilarious. Someone, um, <laughs> although, yeah. okay, no, someone like you- Lily Briscoe in, uh, in Virginia Woolf's Lighthouse. <laughs> I hate the abstract. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, um, yeah, you can just see um emma saying that right yeah. what, what what do you make of that line that, that women hate the abstract because that's coming from prescott right yes young prescott i suppose yeah i think it must be a joke do you think but do you think it's a joke an auchincloss joke winking at us <laughs> in a way that sort of makes fun of frank prescott or is prescott joking when he says that and again he's young prescott i think he his perspective changes a little bit over time but it, it is interesting that these this is a world of men. It's a, and it's a world of yeah. boys. There there aren't women. There really probably there aren't a lot of women in the book, probably in part because there probably weren't a lot of women in their lives. Um and so their views on women are naturally going to be somewhat um incomplete. <laughs> uh so, but what do you make of a line like that from a from young Prescott? Like is he being is it the novel is it Auchincloss winking or Prescott winking? I think maybe Alkinclos. I don't get the sense in the novel that Prescott is presented as having a sense of a humor, deep, <laughs> a deep understanding of women. I often wonder whether he has a sense of humor that I just don't get. I think uh-huh. he does. Um, I think it's a question we'll definitely come back to when we see in the later chapters how he deals with his daughters and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but there's a sense, isn't there, that his his faith, his philosophical conversations with Jowett, those are things that he wouldn't be able to discuss with Eliza. Do you think that's because he doesn't believe that she is capable of it or that she's not interested in it or that he doesn't have the, he doesn't know how to go about talking about those things with with a woman? Hmm. Maybe a combination of those things. The last point you made was interesting, that maybe he doesn't know how to. Yeah, that's a really good point because later well it's actually later in his life but earlier in the novel he does seem to discuss art a bit at least with harriet doesn't he Mm. yeah yeah yeah. he discusses ideas and abstract concepts about what makes good art and whether art should have safety valves in case when you get too involved in the abstract maybe it's it's interesting because i've read a lot of novels where the thing that feels the most unrealistic about them is the way the men and women who barely know each other. Well, actually just in general, men and women talk way too, way more freely and easily than I think a lot of men and women talk about things. Like I think even married couples probably have a hard time talking about things sometimes. Right. Mm. <laughs> and sometimes if I'll, there's, there's novels where especially really talky ones where you get these couples who are talking about these really deep ideas and the words just flow out of their mouths and they don't ever have to think <laughs> about what they're going to say. And they don't, there's no consequences to some little comment that's going to be said that someone's going to take the wrong way. Right. <laughs> and I don't mean that like, you know, I don't mean that that happens all the time when couples talk or whatever, but you just, it's not always as easy as that to talk mm-hmm. to even your spouse, right. Or your, mm-hmm. your brother or your sister or, or even your mother or your father or whatever it is, just because you have a close relationship with someone of the opposite sex doesn't mean that it's easy to talk to them about it. And 
I find that, you know, I'll talk to my wife about things or we'll try to talk about things that are very deep or complex. And I, sometimes I'll, I'll be in the conversation and she probably thinks I'm shutting down, but and I'm thinking, I don't know how to say what I'm about to say, or I don't mm-hmm. know, you know, I don't know how it's going to come across. Like if I was talking to a good friend like Graham, I would be less worried about how it's going to come across, or I would know what he's going to think. And this is my wife who I know very well, right? But you still, there's still sometimes the, uh, the, the, it's still a complicated thing to talk to a woman or talk to a man, right? Yes. And the other struggle that a writer has is that a writer is confined to the printed word itself. Mm. And it, you know, all the other things that will be going on in your conversation with your wife in terms of what you're communicating beyond language as well. It, it's hmm, difficult to convey true. that in a novel. And yeah. um, I often find that the the conversations in Alkinglos's books, ooh, saying books, I only read this one, in this book it, um, are a bit stilted and that maybe that's just a kind of necessary thing in order for him to tell the story. But the idea of very similitude, um, I'm not or naturalism in, in the conversations, I find it very quite, it's quite mannered. It's quite um formal but then maybe this is how people spoke in the 1930s in new england i don't know well do you do you find that say brideshead is not like that no so maybe it's because i'm reading it as a kind of foreigner it's funny that's interesting i don't huh because sometimes i wonder so so you would say that when you read brideshead it feels like they they speak how they would have spoken it does seem that the dialogue seems much more convincing. Yeah. Sometimes when I read a book like Brideshead or certain of Graham Greene's novels, and I don't know if it, maybe it's because I'm an American reading an English book. Sometimes I feel like I wonder if they're, do people actually speak that way? Because, but, but it can, and it feels, it feels a little foreign. Like it feels different than the way we would speak in America or the way, Mm -hmm. the way conversation, like tradition of conversation has been passed on. But so I imagine in some ways, that's a a question of drama, you know, like dramatic presentation. And then in some ways it's probably a question of just culture being slightly different. But then, you know, reading Fitzgerald, I find he writes conversations. He's a Parisian. (laughs) Between men and women, especially really well. That, that yeah. doesn't seem stilted at all. But there's a kind of formality to Alkenklos that sometimes I find a little bit jarring. Yeah, no, no, I do see that. I, I felt that a little bit here and there too. Um, the Fitzgerald comparison is very, very interesting, actually. Mm. Um, that book is very, Gatsby in particular, is mm. um, very short um, and very talky. Um, and, and I... Uh, it's basically him writing poetry in between people talking. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and I wonder if there's just certain people have the gift for presenting dramatic dialogue in a way that, that approximates real life. And it's gotta, it must be something very subtle. Like there's gotta be a fine line that makes what Auchincloss does and Fitzgerald does different. Cause it's, yeah, it, there's, there's something there's something very subtle, I imagine, that that got that that is in Gatsby, say that isn't in the Rector of Justin, or that that go ahead. That's right. I think maybe 
I get the sense that Alkenkloss is a bit more like Brian the recorder, Brian the documenter, that he's taking notes and writing up a culture that he loves, that Alkenkloss loves and has observed firsthand in many drawing rooms and clubs all over New York and Boston. Whereas um, Fitzgerald is much more playful and confident about, um, as you say, being poetic creating it in a more artistic way. Yeah. He, I mean, he's trying to, well, part of, he believes he's a genius too. Right. And <laughs> to some degree he was. So, you know, th- that belief goes a long way. I suppose sometimes it must've been confidence. Yes. Maybe that's what it is. Must've been brutal to be married to him, but you know, <laughs> or be his friend. Uh, but, Again, I guess it was brutal to be married to him, knowing what we know of Zelda Fitzgerald's life. Um, well, hey, we've been going for a long time. We should probably um, wrap up. Do you have any final thoughts um, as we go into the next section of chapters on, and, and what, based on what we've been discussing or what we didn't get to? Um, yeah, I think probably Griscom needs a bit more tension, doesn't he? Because he's quite an important character in the novel. Like tension that that we need to talk about him more, or tension in that he doesn't um, that Auchincloss doesn't give him the tension that he needs to make him a complete character. Um, no, I mean we probably need to give him more of our attention in terms of having a look at how he's constructed as a character and what he contributes because he's only just been introduced in this section, and we're going to see going forward that he has quite an influential role to play in the novel. Yes, I think we've read um, one chapter of of his his stretch of chapters, and he, I think ten is also his. Mm. So for next week, we'll be reading ten, eleven, and twelve uh, for the next for the next episode. So, um, so, <laughs> so I just I went to look up. It's funny. I went to look up the schedule. I had posted it online. Mm-hmm. And somebody in the comment section, oh, good. I'll finally get a definite answer about to how, how to pronounce his name. And here we are not giving anyone a definite answer <laughs> how to pronounce his name. So, And we're pronouncing it differently <laughs> to one another as well. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I have pronounced it three different ways just in this episode um, without without realizing it. So, is it, a, is it of German origin, that surname? I would think it... I I did not do my research on that. <laughs> I don't know. I would think it has it has to have been. It just says he was American on Wikipedia, so you know, <laughs> Wikipedia is giving us everything we need right there. The, the <laughs> other one other thing that we didn't talk about, which we could come back to later in the novel, is <laughs> um, the way that Prescott teaches lessons. Oh yes, I was. I had some questions about that. Yeah, we do need to talk about that. Um, and that's actually probably best save for when Matt's here anyway, because he yeah. has thoughts about how a lesson should be taught. So, um, so next week we got to talk about lessons and we got to talk about Griscom more. Those are two things to put on the list. Okay. So if I forget, you know, just commandeer the ship and, uh, I will retire to the, (laughs) to the lower deck. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this has been fun. Thank you for, uh, thank you for participating and, um, collaborating and, you know, yeah. And for introducing me, for introducing me to this novel, because I don't think I would otherwise have read it. I tend not to read anything after 1900 these days. 
unless I have to. <laughs> well, uh, I can give you more assignments. Yes. Um, I'm sure you... What, so what are you teaching right now? You mentioned you're teaching Brideshead, so that's after 1900. But what else are you teaching to your, to your boys at Eaton? I'm teaching Othello and Hard Times. Is and this the all the same class? No, okay. all different. Okay. Yeah, so, and the yes. Emily Wilson translation of the Odyssey. Yeah. Ah, what do you think of that? I really like it. I like the pace of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do the boys like it? Yes, they adore it. They like looking at what. Um, so I also have the Leyland Riken guide. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's really good at sort of structuring the. Um, the challenges that Odysseus faces around certain temptations and virtues that are getting tested. Mm. And so that's quite fruitful for discussion. Mm. Um, yeah, we just did that on the show here and we used her that's translation right. and it was, it was, I don't know if you listened uh, much, but there, it was fun to look at some of the differences between the different translations. And it made me want to go get, um, pick up the Peter Green translation. Um, Cause he just did an Iliad one that we really like. And then, Last year, I think he came out with an Odyssey one, and his is um, a really interesting um, balance between the really literal translations that some people did, and then mm. um, Emily Wilson's sort of um, readable uh, pace, as you put it. Um, I like the iambic meter. Yeah, I think that works well. I, I couldn't say anything about the quality of the translation because I don't have any Greek, but um, I'd like to read Chapman. Keats has convinced me that that would be. <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean if 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 one of the great sonnets ever written can't convince you to read someone's translations then i don't know whatever is going to yes <laughs> <laughs> all right well uh you are on holiday so i'll let you get back to it are you what's what's on deck for more gardening my sister's coming to visit and i've made a traditional welsh stew because we're from wales so that's what's happening tomorrow okay. dog walks in the rain Bef- you just said the most English sentence of all time. I think you're making a Welsh stew and having dog walks in the rain. Um, is, the, is there anything more English than that? Other than maybe like to be or not to be, I can't, I can't imagine that. Maybe, <laughs> maybe exactly some Welsh. <laughs> well, yeah, but half of England's Wales, aren't they? Welsh. Um, I mean, that's how we Americans think of it. Like you're just like a, you know, England's just a, the Welsh, the Scottish, you're all the same people, right? That's how you think of us. So we put, it's a, I suppose it's a principality, not a country. <laughs> yeah, but do English people think of us North Carolinians as different from New Yorkers and Californians? Probably not, right? Oh, I do, definitely. But maybe, maybe that's You've not the case. You've spent time in America, though. I've spent time with you, yeah. Um, anyway, I've just insulted, you know, all Welsh people. So, um, no, you haven't. <laughs> so, but, but what is in a Welsh stew? Because I want to know. It's, it's lamb and leeks and then vegetables like Swedes and parsnips. So oh, that sounds delicious. Um, yeah. Did you make a stock or yeah. do, you, do you like cook, cook your, um, do you kind of cook down some of your vegetables first with some aromatic type stuff and then cook it's the actually, meat? How do you do it? so easy to make so you need to get lamb on the bone and then you simmer that for about three hours to make the stock and then you um, just in water or do you use wine yeah no just in water and then you dice up the vegetables and seal them in butter and then Mm. they go in and it all sits in the fridge overnight and it's the kind of old celtic stew that gets better by day three it's Mm. absolutely delicious that sounds delicious it's so so it's kind of the perfect uh, 
thing for as the weather's getting a little cooler. Yes, and the leaves are falling off the trees. So would you be up for um, sending me the recipe for that? <laughs> I can definitely send you a recipe. Yes, it's my grandmother's recipe. I will do that. Can Can I share it with the listeners? By all means. We'll have to do like a, we'll have to do a contest where everyone makes their Welsh, traditional Welsh stew, and then we can take pictures and then you can, uh, well, then it becomes a photography contest, but we'll have to. I'm <laughs> to tell a really brief and terrible joke. This is a joke about cheese. Those are the best kind. So this is the cheese that you, you should eat with the cow. There's a special kind of Welsh cheese. So how, how do you eat Welsh cheese? How? <laughs> That's the question for the joke. You have to answer. How do you eat Welsh I cheese? How? I don't know. Carefully. <laughs> so you can't get the joke, I suppose, unless you... Now you can go on Google and have a look. That There's a cheese called Caerfilly, which is the Welsh cheese that you have to eat with this particular stew. So how do you eat Welsh cheese? Carefully. What's the... So how, how do you spell the word? How do you spell the word that's the name of the cheese? It's C... A E R I double F I L Y. Okay. That's not as weird as I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be like a bunch of silent letters. <laughs> that, that joke really fell flat. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Jokes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like it. Um, so for people who don't know, I, our listeners who are still actually listening to this um, would probably just enjoy. So you, so you're from Wales and American people who are into English literature at all tend to be kind of obsessed with the Welsh language. Um, and you're from, can you say the name of your village that you're from? Because you, you said it was a little village. Am I getting that right? Or are you from the bigger city? I'm, maybe I'm Yeah, no, I'm from a little village called Llandabia. And how do you spell that? Double L-A-N-D-Y-B-I-E. And the I has a double dot over the top, like in skiing. What's that called? That kind of eye. Uh, oh, uh, we're going to get corrected. Some, I'm going to get us on the comments about how could you not know this? <laughs> I really should know this. Sorry. But yeah, Llandabia. That's the other joke. <laughs> What's the well, it's people like puns, you see. <laughs> yeah, then, then the rest of us can't understand because we can't tell <laughs> it what you're means, saying. It means go to Llandabia without saying yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So did you... so? The Welsh language then, mm. is it still spoken or is it, or do in Wales, are you primarily speaking English kind of like say I went to Peru and they, even the, the Chechenian, not the Chechenian, the Quechuan people, Chechen, the Quechuan people speak, some of them speak Quechuan, but a lot of them are just speaking Spanish now um, mm. in the villages that I went to. So in Wales, is Welsh still spoken every day? Like if you go into a shop in, in a Wales, Welsh village, I assume they would know English, but what are they speaking to each other? It would depend on the village. I'd say it's pretty rare now. It's pretty rare now to find a village where people don't, aren't able to speak English at all. But certainly when I was growing up, I worked in a National Trust cafe with some girls who couldn't speak English and we spoke Welsh all the time. But I think generally most people in Wales can speak English, but in certain villages, yes, Welsh will be the the language of currency for shopping and family mm. business and stuff like that. Yeah. So if people are traveling to England, you know, say, say someone's going to, to their, I don't know, flying into London and they're going to do a trip across 
Scotland and they might go to Ireland and they're taking it. They're taking a holiday there. And you're saying they should go to Wales. Where should, where should they go? Like what's, what's, what's the, uh, what are a couple of Welsh places that people should visit as part of their trip there? The mountains in Snowdonia are really beautiful and all of the Llyn Peninsula. So there you have beach and mountains all together. Um, and that's very beautiful, rugged, mountainous mm. countryside. Mm. That I think I'd probably go there, but I'm actually from the south. And So what's it like there? A bit more built up. So there are more cities. It's kind mm. of on the M4, so it's a bit more industrialised and connected. Mm. Um, but it's also very beautiful rurally as well. Pembrokeshire so, is beautiful. So when you're growing up in Wales, do you spend a lot of time in England? Did you grow up going to London or Liverpool or Scotland? I mean, I know Scotland's not part of England, but but did you, or do, do people, are Welsh people sort of provincial in the sense that they stick to themselves? Yeah, I think that's true. I don't want to generalize too much, but Wales has always historically been viewed in that way because there are the Cambrian mountains which are a bit of a natural barrier um, between England and Wales. Wales is the sort of country that is it was never properly conquered because it was so <laughs> uninhabitable. Yeah, difficult. What was the point? <laughs> yeah, which is why I think the the language survived and and the culture has survived. But it's a very mm. it's a poetic nation mm. and um, there are lots of there's lots of amazing Welsh poetry that goes mm. all the way back to the 10th century and earlier. Mm. So can you say, um, come visit Wales in Welsh? <laughs> <laughs> what would you say? Croesoi Gamri would be welcome to Wales. Huh. Um, I think there's a great poem. Maybe I can send it to you. You could put it on Facebook or maybe read it in one of your daily poem things um, about Wales. You know, I can't read Welsh, right? No, it's in English about Wales. What it, and it's called? It's called what? It's called Welsh landscape, hmm. and it ends yeah, by saying um, that it's not, there's nothing there apart from an impotent people worrying the carcass of an old song. <laughs> you should. Um, you should. Um, I should have you record a Welsh poem for the podcast, and then we can we can share that. That would be actually really fun. <clears throat> it's amazing how much when you hear people who can speak like old English, how much it seems to sound like Welsh. I mean, it seems like that's been preserved in mm. Wales more than throughout the rest of, well, anywhere in the world, almost <laughs> the, the, that sort of the sound, the, the way that words are made sounds old there in a way that even, I don't know, mm. even like French and German have evolved a little bit. Would you say that's true? Or am I making that up? I think something like Beowulf, it sounds quite Anglo-Saxon, probably, and quite Germanic. Mm-hmm. And that um, if you heard that alongside an old Welsh poem, like a Gododin, which was written around the same time as Beowulf, I think there would be a distinct difference between the Germanic sounding poem and the okay. Celtic sounding one. But then, but there are heavy consonants, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And lots of consonants um, in ancient Welsh poetry is part of the style and the technique of it. Hmm. Well, 
we just do we'll have to just do a whole podcast sometime on 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 uh a lesson on welsh culture from sarah jane bentley um but i don't know if we have time for that for the rest of this one we should probably wrap up <laughs> you should probably wrap up we've gone from new england to eastern wales yeah exactly I, I wales is one of those places that ever since i was a kid i've always been very fascinated by i've never gone there but for some reason i've i don't know if it's because it's got that sort of wildness and it's like the, the old west of 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 in relation to england or something so do you like bruce chatwin do you read any of his novels um I don't think I have. So you can go to Wales in Bruce Chatwin's novel, On the Black Hill. That is a very good novel about what it's like to live on a farm in Wales. I shall do that. That sounds great. So Bruce Chatwin, On the Black... What you, what, on the Black Hill. Okay. Mm. All right. Well, there's another book to add to my reading list. I'll get to that one day. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks again for, for being on the podcast. Thanks to everyone who's listening and who has who is still here and has uh, made it through the, the lesson, the preliminary lesson on well, on Wales. Um, we really appreciate everyone who's listening. Again, if you want to join the conversation, you can do that on Instagram and Twitter at close reads pods on Facebook by joining the Facebook discussion group and on email by emailing us at close reads podcasts at gmail.com uh, for Matt Bianco, for Sarah Jane Bentley, for all of us here at the podcast network. I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And in the meantime, till next episode, happy reading. Mm-hmm.